Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 327 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, today's episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire and The Leader's Circle, something brand new I'm launching. And my guest has been on before, and I'm so glad to have her back. Lisa Turkhurst is here, and she is the president of Proverbs 31 Ministries. She's a number one New York Times bestselling author of uh, several books actually is have hit the list at number one on the New York Times list. And today, guess what she does? She tells you how to write books and to craft messages that people actually want to hear. Uh, I took her private workshop like at her house around her kitchen table for a couple of days in 2019 and was so impressed by it. I'm like, could you come back on the podcast and like actually just share this with everybody? And she graciously agreed to do it. So uh, she wrote a lot of books, as you'll hear, and uh, they did okay, you know, 40,000 copies. And then she changed her methodology about a decade ago and boom, off the chart results. In fact, as a result of uh, meeting with her, I've decided to delay the publication of my next book a full year until I think I've mastered it. So anyway, I'm a student in this one, as I am with all episodes. And Lisa, thanks so much for coming back. And she's got some really great thoughts on how to get your message noticed. And, uh, you know, she's got the street cred for that as well. Hey guys, I've got a brand new initiative I would love for you to be a part of called the Leader's Circle. And there's only like a day or two left to get in. And here's just real brief what it's about. It's done for you staff meetings. I run into so many leaders who are like, I know leadership development is important, but how am I going to read the books? How am I going to do the training? I don't really have time. So you kind of wing it or you just like plug and play a video or whatever. Well, What if you could cross staff meeting prep and leadership development off your to-do list every month inside the leader circle? That's exactly what'll happen. I provide you with a 15 to 20 minute training video, a printable meeting agenda, and a team application guide for your team. So whether that's a dozen leaders or a hundred leaders or a thousand staff, you can actually put it together very, very easily. It's done for you leadership development. I also give you a backgrounder every month, just two pieces of content where you can gain mastery over a particular issue. It's also community to stop leading alone and start leading together. It's access to a tribe of high capacity leaders who are part of a private chat forum where you can discuss your issues and you get access to me. I'll be in that forum. Plus I'll do a live monthly ask me anything call that I'm very excited about. And it's not overwhelming. You don't get like, hey, 700 videos. No, no, no. You just get one piece of content plus a small library that you can access if you want to change it up a little bit. And it's done for you leadership development. So you can head over to theleadercircle.live before it's too late. I'd love to welcome you into it. Information is everywhere access isn't. I'd love to give you access to this. And by the way, if you're like, I don't want to play a video by some other guy, don't worry. We give you the transcript. We give you an audio copy so you can listen to the background or at the gym. And we give you some blank template slides so you can have your team build out your own keynote. And then you stand up and you be the hero in front of your team. That's all inside the Leaders Circle. So head on over to theleaderscircle.live before it's too late. Also, uh, how is your social media sort of developing this year. Because if you really want to take it to the next level, Pro Media Fire can help. They've helped us with the launch of my wife's Smart Family podcast and some projects on my own platform. 
And uh, I know that you know it's a lot of work to create the posts, write the messaging, and then remembering to post throughout the week. Well, if you want monthly custom graphics and video on top of your social media management, you can do that too, all for the cost of less than a staff hire. You also get 10% off plans for life by going to promediafire.com forward slash carry. So head on over to promediafire.com forward slash carry and uh, get their new social fire plan. They'll do it all for you. Custom graphics, messaging, posting, all that stuff. You don't even have to think about it. So guys, I'm so excited for what is ahead in this conversation. And uh, I know you won't be disappointed. By the way, if you want more, there are show notes, right? So you can head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 327, where there's even transcripts. If you want to dive a little bit deeper, and here's my conversation with number one New York Times bestselling author, Lisa Turkhurst. Well, Lisa, welcome back to the podcast. It's so good to have you. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you too, Carrie. So uh, you've written a lot of books, and we're going to get into writing and how to get your message, whatever message you have. I took this training with you um, about a year ago by the time this airs. And uh, we actually spent, me and my team spent a couple of days at your house going through this in detail with a view to my next book, which was really exciting. So I wanted to share it with listeners. But you've written a lot of books over the years, but you noticed an inflection point in your writing that really changed things. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I had written many books and I had hit kind of a maximum cap of how many books were getting into people's hands with each new release that I did. So, you know, when I released my first book, I was overjoyed that over the course of the first couple of years that it was out, that it had sold 20,000 copies. And uh-huh. so um, I was very, very pleased with that. And I couldn't even wrap my mind around 20,000 people reading that message. Um, and I was very, very happy. But, you know, as I continued to write books, I realized it takes just as much work to write a book that reaches 20,000 people as it does to reach a book that reaches 50,000 people. So I started having this real desire to reach more people. And I finally, after many books, got to the place where I was reaching about 50,000 people with my book. And I, I was very, very blown away and pleased by that. But I felt like after a couple books at that level that I'd sort of hit another glass ceiling, if you will, where I just couldn't quite break past that number. And I wanted to um, reach more people with the next message that I wrote. And so I was gearing up to write a book that I felt like was going to be a really important life message. You know, all of my books are important to me, but every now and then you start writing a message and you feel like, I think this is going to be one that's evergreen, a topic that I carry with me for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that this next book was going to be that. So I took two years off from writing, uh, hit the pause button on that book and, um, studied what makes some books connect with massive numbers of people. And then other books only connect with, you know, a just a limited number of people. And so when I did that, I started learning a lot of surprising factors about, what not only makes people buy books, but what keeps people reading a book. And then not only what keeps people reading a book, but read it all the way to the end. And then what makes people recommend that kind of book to a friend? 
I really felt like I was asking the wrong question. I was trying to say, how can I get more people reading my book? And then I discovered the right question really is, how can my book enter into conversations people are having? So we unleash the power of conversation around this topic. And then my book becomes the answer or the solution to the problems and questions that people were already having conversations about. And then even more importantly, how do I make it urgent that people want, that they want to read this message right now? And so all of those kind of questions really propelled me to unearth the most effective way to write a book that unleashes power, the power of conversation and gives people the urgent reasons to buy the book and see the book is necessary to their life right now. So this is interesting. So you already had an idea of what you wanted the book to be about. And I feel that way about certain books I've written. It's like, no, this book I could be talking about three decades from now, right? Like this message is really close. But you also said, um, so uh, just to be clear where the question's coming from, in your mind as an author, as every author, content creator, speaker, writer, whatever, anybody with a message to get out, we're like, no, this is the message that has to get out. And yet you also said that people are already having conversations and you actually want to write a book that describes the conversations they're having. How, how does the message you like, how does that actually work? Because what if the conversations people are having are not particularly tied to your message or are they actually tied to the message you want to get out? Like, how do you, how do you unpack that? Well, it's not so much, uh, diving into their conversations, but rather understanding what is making the conversations happen in the first place. So that's where you want to start. You want to start with, uh, what is the high felt need for this message? And when I say felt need, I always define felt need as a problem that people are, are having or a question people are asking. And when you really hit on a problem that a lot of people are having or a problem or a question that a lot of people are asking and that intersects with your life where you've had some experiential wisdom that you too have struggled with this and that you too have wondered about this and you find some solution that created just a little bit of momentum in your life. You don't have to try to solve the full problem for people or give them the one big epic answer your goal as the author should just be, do I have enough of the solution and enough of the experiential wisdom from struggling with this problem or wondering about this question? Do I have enough of an answer to help people get a little bit of momentum, a little traction and moving forward? Um, Because that's really a great gift to give to your readers. And so it always starts with a problem and a question. But we know that people talk about their problems and questions. So that's what I mean. Yeah. If you if you tackle a felt need that really does help create a solution for people, you your book will be the solution that they talk about. So that's how your book enters into conversations people are already having. So you're not trying to create the conversation. You're not even trying to write about the conversation. You just want your book to be the solution that enters into conversations people are already having about their problems and their questions. So can you walk us through what that looks like? Like pick one of your books, whether that's um, uninvited or it's not supposed to be this way or your best yes or whatever that happens to be. Just pick a book where you're like, yeah, 
this was the message on my heart that I felt I got to write this book. But here is the kind of conversations that people were having about that subject. Can you just Absolutely. get real tangible on that so that we can we can sort of figure out what that that means? Yes. So um, I'll just pick the book that I'm working on right now. So I am working on a book about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Now I have to say, I never wanted to write about forgiveness, but I had some life experiences that put me in a position to where I had a lot of questions about forgiveness and a lot of misunderstandings about forgiveness. So I had a lot of confusion around forgiveness. And um, I was honestly having a problem with forgiveness because I grew up under the uh, assumption, or really, I guess I was taught by my parents that this is how forgiveness happens. Someone hurts you, And then, you know, mom, the judge steps in and says to the offender, that was wrong. You need to say you're sorry. You need to repent, you know, for being so mean or rude. And then mom, the judge would look at me and say, now, Lisa, say you forgive. And now the two of you make up and the relationship is instantly reconciled and you move on and everything is good. So I grew up with this very basic thought about how forgiveness can happen. And none of that is wrong, what my mom taught me. But what became a problem for me is there were all these assumptions around forgiveness that made forgiveness feel impossible to me. Mm. So, you know, the assumption was that someone's always declared right and someone's always declared wrong. Well, we all know relationships are not quite that tidy. Um, (laughs) And you don't forgive until someone says they're sorry. Well, we all know that God has said in in the Bible, we must forgive. And yet there are plenty of times we're hurt where the other person doesn't even realize they hurt you or they're not sorry for what they did. And yet God still says to forgive. And then, you know, there's this saying, forgive and forget. Well, what if you can't forget? Does that mean you can't forgive? And so you see where I'm saying, so really taking time to unearth the felt need around this message on forgiveness helped me understand that there were a lot of questions around forgiveness that I had, and I knew I wasn't alone. And therefore, people were having a problem with forgiveness, and yet forgiveness is supposed to be a cornerstone of our Christian faith. So I started putting out, kind of testing this felt need social media and got quite a reaction to it. And so that's when I know I have a felt need that's not just an article or a podcast or a blog post that I really have a felt need that could be an entire book. Plus I had some experiential wisdom with forgiveness, but mainly I had a high felt need for the message myself. So I knew I'm going to spend two years researching this topic. So it better be a message that I really have a high felt need for in my own life so that I can make good use of this time. So I spent over a thousand hours researching forgiveness and identified what I felt like were some of the most misunderstood concepts around forgiveness. And so that helped me take the felt need, which was the problems and the questions about forgiveness and turn it into solutions and answers that I knew people needed. 
And uh, that's where the real magic happens when a book starts to come together is your reader has problems and questions. You as the author need to offer answers and solutions and then wrap it up in a package where when you talk about the book, you aren't describing what the book is about, but rather you're answering the real question that readers are having. And that is what's in it for me. And so I can instantly now tell people what's in it for you, just even from the title of the book. So we wound up titling this book, Forgiving What You Can't Forget. So you can see how it all kind of comes together and, um, and then the other little secret part of this with the forgiveness book is how do we make this a message that's not just, oh, I need to read that message one day, but how do we make the message that someone hears about it and, and realizes I need to read this message today? Hmm. So how do we make the felt need so urgent that people want to attend to this right now? And so part of how I did that is finding the theological core of the message. So for Christians, you're always going to have a foundation that's rooted in God's word. And that's often what is where you'll find the clue of why this is a message that's urgent for today. So I found that when I realized when Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter six, of all the things that could have been included in this short daily prayer that Jesus said, you know, this is then how you should pray out of the, I think I counted 104 words are in that prayer in the one version of the Bible I was using. 66 of those were around confession and forgiveness. Wow. And yet, even though it's supposed to be a daily prayer, I find most of us are struggling that confession's kind of a lost art and most of us aren't forgiving every single day. And so I started to realize forgiveness is not just for the big epic things of life. It's actually supposed to be part of our prayers every single day. And when God's forgiveness flows to us and we don't allow it to flow through us, I really believe that's the emotional weight of depression and anxiety that so many of us are carrying around because we have hearts that we're not sweeping clean with all the hurts and offenses that happen to us every day. Hmm. So that's one of the ways that you kind of underscore urgency, right? You're like, uh, and that, that, that's something I think I've heard you say for all books. It's like, no, you got to figure out why do you need to read it now? I want to, I want to drill back a little bit, Lisa. So as you're shaping this message, as you're doing your research, how do you figure out the phraseology, the language, the what's in it for me? So on forgiveness, what's in it for the reader? Like, how do you define, you know, what marketers would call the whiffum, literally what's in it for me? How did, how did you unearth that? Well, I think um, by first, when we open up the book, painting the scenario that most of us are carrying around a heavy feeling and we can't figure out why. And most of us are dealing with the effects of unforgiveness and hidden places of bitterness in our heart, but we're not attributing it to bitterness and unforgiveness. We're attributing it to other things, stress and, you know, worry and too much pressure and, you know, uh, relationships are just complicated. Or maybe we get to the place where we say, you know, well, I'm just having relationship problems. But I would say if you really dig down deep in inside anybody that's saying they have relationship problems, it's, you know, really can 
be somewhere in there. It's you're having a forgiveness problem, you know? Mm. And so when I start to really unpack for the reader, their need for this book, you know, I, I always start with what are those feelings that you're having that you want to improve or you want to get rid of, or you want a different perspective around, because if I can't solve the chaos inside of me, I'm never going to be able to have a better perspective of the chaos outside of me. And, uh, so that's really how I start painting this picture, but Carrie, I also enter in, into, um, every single book by admitting what a problem I have with this. So some of the early stories that open up, they're not stories of success. I'm not the hero of this Mm. message. Um, the, the, my books always open up with stories of failure because it instantly helps me connect with a reader. And if you don't get anything else from what I'm saying on this podcast, get this, a reader, when they open up a book, they aren't looking to be educated as much as they are looking to be known. Mm. And so as an author, if right from the beginning pages of a book, if you can help someone feel known, then they'll feel safe enough for you to educate them. Because if the reader doesn't think that you understand the depth of their struggle, they're never, ever going to trust your advice. How do you figure out the depth of someone's struggle? Because you do that so well. I mean, in your writing, it's so personal. Um, but, you know, we got, we got message creators out here. It's like, why do I have a 10% open rate on my emails? How come nobody's coming to hear me speak? How come, you know, my book sold a thousand copies? Like the, these, these are the problems of the leaders who are listening so how do you tap into that? How do you figure out how do you figure out what's going on in their head to to know them, to really know your audience? Well, it's probably an answer that you're not gonna like, but I'm gonna give it to you anyways. I wanna hear um, it. that struggle you don't want to write about is probably the very one that you would write the best about. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. You know? So when I I'm writing on forgiveness, you know, just to peel back the curtain a little bit to, to welcome you into the private world of the public facing author, Lisa Turkers, you know, I didn't want to write about forgiveness because I was struggling so much with feeling like forgiveness was so completely unfair. Mm. And yet here I am, this Christian speaker and writer and having just walked through four years of utter hell in my life. Um, and I know God says to forgive, but you know, I kind of felt like that's good for you, God, but I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. So I don't know. This forgiveness thing feels incredibly unfair. And like, I'm almost adding more pain onto the hurt that I've already experienced and I can't make other people sorry for what they did. So I don't want to forgive. And so forgiveness was the exact message I didn't want to write because it was the exact message I was having a very hard time living on my own. And so because this is not a message that I've waltzed through Instead, it's a message that I've wrestled through. I felt defeated by. I have cried. My team has shown up to 
work on editing a chapter and found me bawling my eyes out, sitting at my gray kitchen table, begging them to find someone else to write this book, call the publisher, offer the advance money back. I don't want to do this because I can't live this. And that's when my, my team would look at me and they would say, Lisa, the fact that you don't want to write this is the biggest clue that you are the one to write this because you know what it feels like to be so defeated by a topic that you've got to learn to embrace. And so that's how you know that Mm. you will be able to approach a topic with tenderness and with the right kind of empathy and with the right kind of awareness of the felt needs of your readers, because it's something that you felt utterly defeated by in your life. And yet, as you wrestle through it, you gain so much experiential wisdom that it quickly becomes from identifying with the reader's felt needs and not wanting to write the book to finding little mini victories. And that's really what a book is about. You know, it's not whole books that point to this epic victory that changed people's lives. It's sentences within the book that will change people's life. It's little mini victories that you discover along the way that suddenly you go from not wanting to write the message to feeling so compelled you have to write the message because you know other people are struggling with this. And if you can help them have a mini victory, wow, what a gift that is. Hmm. That is a that is a good answer. That's a challenging answer. I think uh, all of us. I told you it's going to be the yeah. very answer yeah. you did not want. I'm, I warned I'm, you. <laughs> in the background, we didn't talk about this. I'm writing a book on Sabbath because I suck at Sabbath, and I'm two Sabbaths and a one week vacation into this journey, and like I'm trying to capture some of it. So at some point, I'm just going to write a book called Sabbath for people who suck at rest or something like that. Because that's me. I'm just. I'll just be on the clock forever. Uh, Lisa, I know you've shared this before. People have heard you on this podcast before or read your books. They know a bit of your story. But for those who may not, to the extent that you're comfortable sharing, do you mind just sharing a little bit about some of the personal struggle that's happened that led you into that place you described? Yeah, so... Um, and I'll share it in kind of a bullet point format for the sake of time, but I don't want that to diminish the... Um, excruciating angst that this really has wrapped all around it because it was years of suffering one tremendous shattering blow after another. But for the sake of just catching everyone up, um, I discovered my husband who had been my best friend and my life partner um, for as long as it was almost like I've been with art for more years than I'd been without him in my Mm. life. So we'd been married over two decades and raised five children together. Um, and I found out he was being unfaithful and it absolutely shattered my heart and stunned me, left me reeling, feeling like not only was I losing my husband, but I was potentially losing the father of my kid who'd always been such a strong leader and such a man that we all looked up to. So that was disillusioning. But on top of that, because I lead such a public ministry life, you know, I just, I really wrestled with, do I even have a place in ministry to go Mm -hmm. through something this messy? 
And then on top of all of that, I, um, almost died from, uh, my colon twisted very unexpectedly. And the doctors were trying to figure out what was going on with me and, and eventually rushed me into surgery and had to remove most of my colon. And I was in the intensive care unit, very touch and go for, um, about two weeks. And, you know, the, I think the doctors are all still pretty surprised that I survived that. And right when I healed from that, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So, you know, again, I say all of this very quickly just so we can get through the, the, the answer to your question. But, um, you know, it was years of suffering like I'd never known suffering before. Now, Lisa, I mean, I know the story and you and I've talked about it, but, and I've read about it and, you know, even those bullet points, it's just crushing and devastating. And now you're in the process of being back together with art, working through all of the issues. And now you've got to come to terms with forgiveness, right? What does that actually look like? What does that feel like? Yeah. And so whether someone's story is like mine or their circumstances are completely different, I think we all hit something in life or maybe several big things in life where we realize we're going to have to make a choice here to forgive or not forgive. You can't just sit in limbo, you know, it's, it's pretty much you're either on the pathway of forgiving or you're withholding forgiveness, which means you're living in unforgiveness. So there's really no in between there. And so I think because I was wrestling with the fact that I hit a season that was going to force me to really look at this topic and decide what I was going to do with it. And then I started to realize it's not just a topic for that one big epic hurt in my life. It's something that we all must decide every single day because every single day there's little offenses that happen to us. And so I I say in the book, the very best time to forgive is before you're ever offended, but the next best time is right now. Hmm. So it's not just a conversation. And I knew it wouldn't just be a book around, you know, the one big awful thing that's happened in your life. What do we do with it? But it's really more of a lifestyle. Are we willing to live the message of forgiveness day in and day out, minute by minute, hour by hour. And isn't it amazing, just like I mentioned before, that forgiveness is part of the way that Jesus taught us to pray. Right after, give us today our daily bread, he goes right into and forgive us for the things that we have done as we forgive those who have done things to us, right? And so forgiveness is supposed to be part of that daily prayer. But also in Ephesians chapter 4, Uh, it talks about in your anger, do not sin, do not go to bed, you know, and sit in the anger that's in your heart. And so it's almost like when we wake up in the morning as part of our daily morning prayer, we're supposed to forgive. And then before we go to bed each night, we're supposed to check our heart. Is there any bitterness there? Is there any rage, anger, slander, uh, any form of malice? uh, and, And we're supposed to sweep our heart clean. So it's like when the sun rises, we're supposed to forgive. And when the sun sets, it's supposed to be another reminder. It's time to forgive again so that we don't let all of this stuff collect inside of us. When the book comes out, I'm really looking forward to doing a much deeper dive on everything you've learned about forgiveness, both in your own story and in all that research you've done. One of the things that amazes me, Lisa, about your writing, and I think it really is 
tremendous. Like, I don't know, I'm in awe of how you do it as somebody who writes myself for a living and communicates myself. But there are three different teach, three different voices, I guess you have as a writer, as a content creator. Can you walk us through those? Because you would be an in the field voice, which uh, will make a lot more sense 10 minutes from now than it does right now to listeners. But the way you do that, because I think, I think the mistake is often as a leader, we want to have it all figured out. Like, you know, I burned out 15 years ago, but now I have no problems in my life here by my formula or the, I am such a mess and a disaster. Uh, Let me tell you all about it, but I have no idea how to help you. We've seen those two extremes and they can be really dangerous. So I would love to just unpack those three voices. If you could explain what they are, what they sound like so that people can kind of identify their own natural voice. And uh, I want to just unpack that for a little while. Okay. And, and I'll say none of these three voices are wrong. It's just that you need to identify which tone of voice does your audience best receive information uh, by hearing. And, and so you need to deliver your message, whether you're speaking or writing in the tone of voice that your audience is expecting and that they can best receive it. So that's, I want to say that right off the bat, because sometimes it can feel like this first voice is the wrong voice and it's not, there's, there's whole audiences of people that like this tone of voice. So the first one is, um, in the tower. So I call it Mm. the tower voice. And that's where the, the person giving the message is, is really delivering the message from an elevated position. So they are not sharing any past struggle or any present struggle with issues. They're just addressing the issues and telling you this is right and this is wrong. So I call this sort of the old school preacher voice. And the directive there is you should you should do this, this, and this. If you do it, here's the blessing. And if you don't do it, here's the consequence. So that's the first tone of voice. And again, it's not a wrong one. There are audiences that like that. There are audiences of people that, you know, they don't want the teacher or the preacher or the writer, the author to divulge personal information. They see that as a distraction and they just want to be told the facts of what to do, what not to do and move on. So that's the first tone of voice. The second tone of voice is what I call the teacher voice. So the teacher is not up in the tower. They're more at the front door. And the directive is not you should, but rather you could. And so the teacher will share past struggles of what they've gone through. And then not really though, they they won't share any present day struggles with it. So it's almost like I'm the teacher, I've arrived and you can get to this place too if you do A, B, and C. I used to struggle with this, but I don't struggle with it anymore. So that's the teacher voice. And again, that's not a wrong voice. It's just maybe that's how your audience best receives the information that you're trying to give them. The third tone of voice is what I call in the field. So we're not in the tower. We're not at the front door. We've walked out into the field amongst the people that are there looking for the information. And instead of pointing our finger down at people or even pointing our finger out at people, instead, we just sort of take our arms and wrap them around people. And the in the field voice, the directive is not you should and not you could, but rather together we can. So this kind of voice, you're honest about past struggles and you share experiential wisdom of how you've made progress, 
but you're also okay with everything not being perfectly tidy in your life today. And you admit, Hey, sometimes I still struggle with this, but I've realized imperfect progress is still progress. So let's make imperfect progress together. And then Carrie, of course, there actually is a fourth voice, but this is the wrong voice. So like I've said, those three voices, those are all tone of voices. How your audience best receives the information is the tone of voice you want to use. So none of those are wrong, but this one is wrong. And I would call it the in the pit voice. In the pit voice is where I'm down in a pit just saying, life stinks. This is hard. It's never going to get any better. Why don't you just jump down in the pit and wallow with me? So that is a wrong voice, right? But that doesn't help some, anybody. That doesn't help anybody. But sometimes communicators can find themselves in a pit, you know, where uh, maybe somebody around them needs to just kindly say, hey, I think you will eventually have some experiential wisdom, but let's not write from the pit because we don't want to include people to wallow with us. We want to include people to walk with us and actually make progress. Wow. That was so clarifying for me. And uh, I think I've shared this in different forms before. But it was so convicting to me because, number one, I think the in the field voice is the voice that probably most naturally resonates with me. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think it's also the voice that is resonating in the moment we are in culture right now? Like, do, do you find that that is a pretty big resonance point with people? Yeah, I think there's still audiences for all three tone of voice, but I, I would say, you know, definitely my audience at Proverbs 31 Ministries, I've gathered people around me who expect me to talk from the field. So I have a very in the field voice. And, um, and I do see that that resonates with the way that some of the, the cultural nuances of our day, you know, we're more exposed as people than ever before. You know, it's harder to pretend. I mean, certainly we can put on a show with social media, but people can read through the lines. And, and so I think we're all more a little, um, I guess a little more honest with what we're going through in the present day, which sort of makes that in the field voice more applicable, but we just have to be careful to recognize everyone has a different threshold for vulnerability and, and it is possible to be a person of privacy and yet also be in the field with great vulnerability. And what I mean by that is when you're in the field and you're writing from that place or delivering a message from that place, it's important to remember there's a big difference between privacy and secrecy. Secrecy is for the purpose of hiding, but privacy, withholding some facts or details about whatever vulnerable situation you're writing or speaking about, privacy is not for the sake of hiding. It's for the sake of healing. So while we don't want to be secretive, we do still want to be private. And I think it's important if you're going to write from the in the field voice that you determine your threshold for vulnerability and your family's threshold for vulnerability. And it's okay to withhold details. You know, I always say if we really want to help people, then don't oversaturate their brains by, you know, really giving them the answers to all the things they're curious about your situation. Hmm. Instead, make your situation or your story the backdrop 
so that people know you want to share just enough so that people know you can identify with the pain from that situation, but they don't need to know all the details because the more you satisfy people's curiosity, the less desiring they will be of your teaching. So just think about details that satisfy Mm. people's curiosity. Those are like candy and it's okay to have a little bit, but you don't want that to be the meal that you try to nourish people with. How do you draw that line? Like in your own life? I know there are parts of the the horrible struggle you've been through in the last four or five years that you've made public, but I'm sure the majority, there are some things that are just between you and art or you and your family or you and your close knit circle. Mm -hmm. Where, how do you draw that line in your head? So people know, just like I did on this podcast, that the big struggle that I was walking through that carried a lot of emotion with it is that my husband was unfaithful. But that story of his unfaithfulness is his to tell, not mine. Mm. My story is the fallout of my emotional experience, knowing that that's what happened. I don't really need to share any more details than that because people instantly understand there is an emotional fallout. So where I go into detail is, is opening up people to how that emotional fallout played out in my life. So I think part of knowing where those lines are is recognizing, you know, what part of this story is yours to tell and what part of it is someone else's to tell. How much do you do? Is there a line for like, are there parts of your story that are like, no, that's just for me. And what are those lines? Yeah, I think, um, those things that are just for me, um, I'll probably, it's like, I'll kind of dance in the, the details, um, when I'm starting to write the story and then I'll kind of pull back and I'll say, okay, 10 years from now, if Mm. one of my kids or grandkids opens up this message, is this something that they will quickly be able to discern? Mom shared this because it's going to help other people process their pain, or are they going to read this? and say, wow, she shared this and now this is causing me pain. And so I think that for me is the real litmus test. You know, obviously our family story became private. I mean, became public, not, not because I wanted it to, but because it was either going to be told through the rumor mill or I needed to get out and tell it. So I held the story private for 18 months. So it was almost two years that not even my kids knew the details of what we were walking through that whole time. And then certainly the world didn't know, but it became painfully apparent that the story was going to leak out and there were reasons for that. Um, And so, you know, I realized at that point, I just needed to get out in front of the story, share the facts of it, but then the details of it, we've kept private for all this time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really helpful to know. Because I, I think about that as an author myself and didn't see it coming. My last book, I was pretty vulnerable. And, you know, I, I tend to be that way. It was that kind of a book. But I thought about, okay, when my parents read this, when my friends read this. And there are things that people learned about me. Like the less well you know mm-hmm. me, the more you learned about me when, when you read the book. The people closest to me kind of knew. Um, but you do have to think about that. And, uh, I I always run it through a helpful filter. Is this going to actually help people or is this just extraneous? So it's really good to know that you've got, got that kind of, uh, uh, 
a formula. I, the other thing, or, or at least categorization, I think is a word I was looking for. The other thing I found really helpful is what you call subconscious narrative writing. Mm-hmm. And you did that so beautifully. Can you walk us through subconscious narrative and why it's so, such a, a powerful device? Right. So sometimes you want to teach a point that's a, a very important point in the book, but you don't necessarily have a big epic story to tie to it. And, and you, you, you know, it is really helpful for the reader if you have a story, because while they may not be able to remember your teaching point, people always remember with almost like crystal clarity, a story, our brains are Mm -hmm. wired that way. When you go listen to a sermon, you'll probably forget the points of the message, except for those points that were closely tied to a story. And if you can remember the story, then you can back up and remember the teaching point. So uh, stories are very powerful, but maybe you're teaching something that's really important and you really don't have a personal story to put there. So I think that's a wonderful opportunity for writers and authors to do what I call subconscious narrative. And that is think of a situation that's very common to the struggle that you are addressing in your book. So for example, in my book, Made to Crave, that book was not helping people find the how to get healthy. People know how to get healthy eat less, move more, make healthy choices. So that wasn't my struggle. So I didn't want to address the how to get healthy. I wanted to address the want to. So not the how to, but the want to. And that is when trying to get healthy and faced with the decision, how do I keep that lasting motivation to make those healthy choices? And uh, so that was a book that I was writing. And so I thought, where's a common struggle that people have when they want to get healthy, but things keep falling apart each day. They vow to make better choices. And yet now very quickly, they're making justifications and excuses and their great plan to get healthier is falling apart. Well, a common place that that happens is between your bed, the bathroom scale, the refrigerator, kitchen area, And that little triangle between your bed, your scale, your kitchen, your bed, your scale, your kitchen, your bed, your scale, your kitchen, that little part of real estate is really where so much of the struggle happens. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily conversations we're having with other people. It's all this ticker tape thought process that's running in the back of our mind. So in Made to Crave, I wrote a subconscious narrative piece that talks about, I wake up. I roll over. I look at the clock another day. I walk to the bathroom vowing that today is the day I'm going to make healthier choices. I step on the scale. The scale is not keeping my secrets. I step off the scale. I pull out my ponytail holder because, hey, it's got to weigh something and Mm -hmm. step back on the scale. But my body has not magically changed overnight, nor has the molecular structure of my body shifted so that I could weigh less. It's just the scale is revealing all my secrets. So I get off the scale and think today's the day I am going to make healthier choices, no matter what, until I walk into the kitchen and feel my resolve melting like the icing on the hot cinnamon rolls. My daughter just pulled from the oven. Yum. Oh, who cares about making healthier choices when these cinnamon rolls speak such love and deliciousness to my heart. Well, maybe tomorrow is a much better day to keep my promises to eat healthier. So I eat one cinnamon roll and then 
well, since I'm not really starting today, I might as well live it up. This might be my last day to eat cinnamon rolls in a while. I'll have two. I'll have another one. And then the next day I wake up, I roll over. I look at the clock another day. I slide out of bed and strip off everything that might weigh even the slightest ounce as I head to the scale, hoping the scale will keep my secrets again today. So you can see how that's not like an epic story of an event that happened in my life. It's a subconscious narrative piece. And so it's happening. It's the thoughts that are happening in the place where the struggle of the book is occurring quite often. Now, Carrie, you'll notice a couple of things when you write subconscious narrative. Um, Did I speak, like when I'm writing that, did I speak any of the words out loud? No, it's all thoughts that I'm recording. So it's not dialogue between me and another person. It's dialogue between me and me inside of my head, between Mm. the version I want to be and the version that I am and the version that's quite frustrated, right? So it's all the different me's battling inside of my head that are having these internal dialogues that most people have. And when you can give voice to thoughts that a reader is struggling with, but they don't know how to verbalize on their own, when you can write that out on paper, a reader will read that and they will lean in and go, oh, he so gets me. And remember, I told you one of the greatest gifts you can give your reader is not instruction. It's just to let them know that they are known. And subconscious narrative does this so beautifully. The difference between a story and subconscious narrative, a story, you want to let the reader peek inside of your life. So you want to give all the details. So they feel like as they're reading your story, that they're watching a movie of an event that happened in your life. When you're doing subconscious narrative, it's not that. The reader's not peeking inside of your life. You want to make the reader feel like you are peeking inside of their life. And how you do that is you don't describe any of the objects. So think of all the objects that I just said in that piece that I quipped off for you for just a minute ago. The bed, the scale, the kitchen, the cinnamon rolls, the ponytail holder. I didn't tell you the color or the style or the shape or any of that. I didn't describe any of those objects because when you're writing subconscious narrative, you want the reader to picture their bed, their ponytail holder, their scale, their kitchen, their cinnamon roll. And you don't want to disqualify them from picturing this very thought process in their own life. So you don't describe anything because their brain is instantly pulling up pictures of all those objects in their life. That's Mm -hmm. why sometimes my reader will say, I feel like you have literally peeked inside my bedroom windows and captured a scene for my life. Well, I can assure you I'm not peeking in anyone's (laughs) windows but it's because they pictured their life when they read subconscious narrative and none of the objects are disqualified from being the actual objects in their own story. So that's how you write subconscious narrative. And one other interesting piece, when you write subconscious narrative, you want to think ahead of time about what is the feeling I want to evoke in my reader. So Carrie, what were some of the feelings when you heard me tell that subconscious narrative piece that you could, you could literally feel the angst within the story? What were some of those feelings? Yeah, well, definitely resonance. I mean, I've been there as somebody who's always trying to lose 10 to 20 pounds. I can totally relate to that. 
um, the whole feeling about you're asking a guy to explain his feelings. So just bear with I me. I know. For a so you let know, me help you out. Is, like, yeah, frustration. Please, please. Okay. Frustration. Um, Upset defeat. when you're standing on, yeah, defeat when you're standing oh, on the scale yeah. and it's like it went up, it didn't go down. Oh my gosh, exactly. but I was good. And then, you know, that feeling of heading down in my case, because I did picture where my scale is and heading down the stairs into the kitchen. And it probably wouldn't be cinnamon rolls, but it probably would be um, something that was left over from the night before that the boys are eating for breakfast that I'm like, oh yeah, might as well, right? Because uh, it's so good. So what are those feelings? Help me uh, there, Dr. Turkers. Yeah. So frustration, defeat, uh, doubt, hopelessness, uh, you know, just all of those feelings that when someone is vowing to get healthier, but constantly tripping over temptations and then not keeping their promises to eat healthier, you know, there's certain words or feelings that they struggle with often. And so when you write subconscious narrative, don't state any of those feelings. Don't say I stepped on the scale and I was frustrated or I walked to the kitchen and I was tempted or I ate the cinnamon roll and instantly felt defeated. You don't want to use those words because that's tired, typical writing. What you want to do is evoke the emotion, evoke the feeling of what you're trying to uh, what you're trying to get the reader to experience so that they can identify with that very situation in their own life. Oftentimes your editor will say things, or at least my editor will sometimes write, show me, don't tell me. In Mm. other words, don't state the feeling, evoke the feeling because more than just reading the book, your reader wants to experience the message and they can only experience the message. If you evoke the feelings that you're tackling in your subject matter. It's actually harder to do because in my next writing project, I do sub subconscious narrative. And that's actually is a really refined art. So I appreciate the deep dive into it. Um, Is it fair to say that one of the best ways to figure that out is just to go into your own head and narrate it? Yes. And start really paying attention to the thoughts that are already there. There's lots of content already there in the thoughts that kind of run like a ticker tape behind, Mm. uh, in our mind. And so it's the thoughts that your reader is thinking that they don't know how to verbalize that when you put pen to paper and write those out again, the reader feels so understood, so known, so, um, just connected to you as the writer, because they really will exclaim out loud. Wow. They get me. Yeah. I, I, in a very, we write in different genres and to slightly different audiences. But uh, one of the comments I get regularly, and I don't do it as well as you, but it's like, how did you know? Or are you reading mm-hmm. my mail? Or, oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. You live inside my head. Yes. And most of the time, like 99% of the time, when I get that comment, I'm like, no, I just let you into my head. That's what mm. happened. And, you know, That's it's sort good. of that scripture that there is no temptation, there's no struggle except what is common to people. And if you've, you know, if that's been a personal journey for you, it's probably a personal journey for others. And so I think for public speakers, preachers, communicators, or anybody with a message out, right? Like if I was running a clothing company, let's play that game for a second. If you're running a clothing company, because I get this like suit stuff, right? Because I'm a speaker. And it's always like the suit is now in stock or whatever. But if you were to do that, 
what you really want to do is you really want to market to feelings, right? Like I would love somebody to come in and just like, tell me what to wear and I don't have to worry about it. And it fits perfectly. That's really what I want. Yeah. So, you know, if I was working for that company, I, I would encourage them to think about their distinctives beyond just the obvious. So it's like, okay, we're not just selling suits. We're not just selling suits that are on sale today, but rather we're the unique company Mm -hmm. that makes our suits hit at the most flattering length for the jacket length, you know? So we're the company Mm. that thinks about that moment when you put the suit on and stand in the mirror, we're the, we're the suit company that you're going to like what you see staring back at you. You know, we're the, we're the suit company that, uh, you're never going to have to worry about, is it in style to button your jacket or not button your jacket? Because our unique fit works both ways. You see what Uh, I'm saying? Yeah. See, I'm going to subscribe to your clothing company. All I want is I want the don't look like an idiot idiot when you're on stage or on video clothing company. That's the one I want. Exactly. Because I don't want to think about it. I like, I don't really care. I just don't want to look like an idiot. That's sort of my brain. So I would say we're the suit company that makes jackets that work with t-shirts or dress shirts. Totally your choice. Our suit will match. Great. That helps so much when marketing because (laughs) 98% of marketing and sometimes I just subscribe to see what's going on. But it's like, this is on sale. This is available now. This is new. This is like, ah, I don't care. I just talk to, talk to my heart. This is good. You talk about writing or fighting for your reader. So I would love to know, because we covered an awful lot. How else, if there is anything else, do you fight for your reader? Well, um, back to the suit conversation. If I'm fighting for the reader of that ad, right? Um, I would say, you know, don't ask the question, the, the, the reader or the buyer is not asking the question, you know, what's your book about or for our suit conversation, you know, what's the color of your suit or, you know, what's the name of that suit style? They don't care about that. What the reader or the buyer of that suit is really asking is what's in it for me. Like, how are you going to solve my problem? How are you going to answer my question? And so knowing that that's really what they're after fighting for the reader means writing sentences that really stick with people. So when I'm Mm. fighting for my reader, I want to make sure that every two to three page spread in my book, that there is something that would compel somebody to get out of their bed when they're snuggled up at night and reading my book, that they would feel so inspired by a sentence on that two page spread that they're going to get up out of their bed, go to the kitchen, open up their junk drawer, find a highlighter marker, go back to their bed, swipe it across the page and say, this must not be forgotten. Because if people go too long without highlighting a book, they'll stop reading the book. Mm. And if they stop reading the book, then they'll never finish it. And if they never finish the book, they're never going to recommend it to a friend or have it enter into conversations that they're having about helpful information that could be good for other people that they're in conversation with. So fighting for the reader means fighting for sentences that really matter. If you said it well in 50 words, say it even better in 15 fighting for the reader is working on that back cover copy so that you write the back cover copy answering the real question that readers are asking. 
Again, it's not what is this book about, but rather what's in it for the reader. Mm -hmm. And you bullet point exactly what's in it for the reader so they don't have to try to figure out, is this book worth my time and money? You jump right off the page and say, yes, this is going to solve a problem that you're having. It's going to answer a question that you've been asking, and it's urgent. It's a right now message, and this is what's in it for you. So that's what it means to fight for the reader. And then even in the back pages, which are, I think, a lot of times forgotten no man's land for authors, recognize, fill those back pages up after you've said the last word you're going to say in the book. Fill that up with practical application uh, tools that will help your reader better apply this message and give them a list of all the best quotes from the book. Give them all the best Bible verses from the book. Uh, Take a chapter that you could really give a chart or a flow, like a little flow chart or or even a, a quiz or a test or an assessment. Put some stuff in the back of the book that makes the price of the book worth it just for those back pages. That's what it means to fight for the reader. Don't just write a book, but write a book that truly will equip people to make life change. And when you do that, you know, we're not supposed to be the heroes of our own book. It's, it's entering into the reader's life and making them believe that they can have a heroic moment of victory in their life. And that's what makes people feel so known and seen and equipped to experience victory. How do you get someone to read to the end of a book? <laughs> Great question. Um, well, I do think have giving people reasons to highlight all throughout the book. Every time someone takes a note in a book or they highlight something in a book, it cues their brain. This is valuable. I need to keep going because there's more to discover. But if they stop highlighting the book and they go too long without seeing something valuable in the pages of a book, then they will stop reading. So part of it is just making sure that you really challenge yourself to put information that people highlight woven all throughout the book. People highlight really good quotes. They highlight Bible verses. They highlight statistics. They highlight uh, bullet points. They do not highlight stories. They do not highlight long sections of teaching. Um, And they definitely don't highlight when we ramble as writers. So part of the secret to keep people reading is to not go off on so many rabbit trails that people get lost. You want to keep them on the runway, you know? And so part of that's going to be killing our darlings being honest with ourselves about streamlining what we're wanting to do. I'm in the editing process for my forgiveness book right now, and my editor has done something so brilliant to prove to me there are chunks of material that need to be cut. She will do outlines of my chapters and say, this is the main point of your chapter. And here are all the ways you stayed on point, and here are all the places you deviated. And she'll color code like green, is you're keeping people on the runway. Yellow is you've sidestepped a little bit, but you're able to get back on the runway. Red, you have gone off on a rabbit trail too far for people to remember the main point. This has got to be cut. And you have sold a ton of books. And do you ever get to the point where you're thinking, how did I, you really need outside eyes. Like it's hard to judge your own work, isn't it? It really is. It's very hard. And I tell every editor that I work with, please do not edit me like I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I I am a New York Times bestselling author several times over. But if you edit me with that in your mind, you will excuse things that 
should never be excused and you won't mm. help me fight for my reader. So edit me like a first time author, because in essence, I am a first time author of this book. Wow. That's a, that's really good and really humble. Um, just as, as we kind of wrap up, Lisa, I'd love to know the, cause you said you were selling about 50,000 copies of your other book, which is actually really good. Most publishers would be quite happy with 50,000 in sales, but what has the change in voice and the change in structure? Um, how different are results now since you've changed your methodology? Well, I read a statistic that says less than 1% of books ever sell over 100,000 copies. Wow. And I believe that to be true. But since applying this compel method, and that's what I call it, write yeah. words that compel uh, your reader to action, like write words that move people. So that's what this model is. And, you know, when you're talking about training, it, it, it really is something that I take such joy in. I love when other authors sign up for my uh, writing workshops and, and my trainings, because I want to make more people with great messages cross that threshold of selling over a hundred thousand copies. So since I've developed this model, all of my books have um, crossed over that threshold and, and several of them have crossed over it tenfold. And I am uh, blown away by, by what is happening with the messages. But because I spent so many years struggling as a writer who wanted to even just have a publisher talk to me, I, I know what it feels like to be back at that place where I have a great desire to write and zero readers. I started with zero readers and I spent a lot of years there and I received so many rejection letters from publishers. So I know what that phase is like. I know what it's like to get my first book contract and then you know, try my hardest to write the first 10,000 words for my book and have my editor reject all 10,000. And then me want to cancel the contract because I can't do this. So I spent long seasons there. I know what it's like to finally sell 20,000 books, but th then, then to wake up one day and realize so many more people need this message. Mm -hmm. So how do I reach those people? So I've been in all these phases. I've spent long seasons in these phases. So no matter where someone is as a writer, I deeply understand that place. And I love to meet writers and authors at the place that they're at and help them see how they can grow and reach even more people with the messages that they're passionate about. Well, it helped me a lot and uh, lessons I'll carry with me all of, all of my days. If people want to interact more with your training, where can they go and how is it available? That's a great question. So uh, there's a couple of ways that people can access it. So if you go to Proverbs 31 Ministries, we have a writing training membership site. So that's probably the most cost-effective way. You don't get the personal instruction from me, but you get instruction of many of the things I've talked about today um, through video. And so you can take the information that you get from the membership site. You can find out about that at Proverbs 31 
ministries.org. So you can go there and uh, check out our compel monthly membership training. Um, or if you're interested in the private compel, then I'll make sure Carrie, that you have an email that you can link in the show notes today. And we can yeah. make sure that, uh, people can just reach out to us directly. My assistant Shay is, uh, who handles all of that for me. So her email, if you want to put it out there to the world, she will be overjoyed to uh, get people's inquiries about that. And uh, and we'll answer all of those and get people filtered to the right kind of training. I do individual training, which is what you and I did. Yeah. And then we're also, this upcoming year, we're doing some group training where I take uh, about 10 to 15 authors, um, invite them to my house. I've actually built a building called uh, Haven Place. It's right on my property. Mm. And um, so we'll do the same kind of training you did in the individual setting, Carrie, we'll do in a group of about 10 or 15. I'll invite my staff members in. And so you will get some individual attention, but you also get the benefit of interacting with other authors and having feedback from them as well. So uh, we've got a couple of great opportunities for those both here at my house. And then also um, there's going to be one that I do up in my, uh, I have a little mountain cabin, which isn't that so quaint you know, to go to the, the, go to the mountains, the writing cabin. And so, um, I'll do a couple of the group trainings up at the writing cabin as well. So, um, lots of opportunity. So, you know, no matter what your budget is, you can scale it to fit either the monthly membership site, the group training or the individual training. Oh, that sounds great. And I've, I, like I say, I'll, and you shared some of this, but it's so much more. It was a couple of days together and it was so helpful. Lisa, can't wait to read the new book. Thank you so much for encouraging our leaders. You're a great follow on social too. So we'll link to everything in the show notes and what a joy to spend some more time with you. Thank you, Carrie. It's always an honor to be with you as well. So thank you. Well, I knew you wouldn't be disappointed and uh, I can't wait to have Lisa back to talk about her next book when that releases, uh, Forgiving What You Can't Forget. Is that not like the best title? I have title envy. I really, really do. That's just really smart. But She's really smart. And if you want more, make sure you check out the show notes and even the transcript at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 327. Uh, the What I'm Thinking About segment is coming up. We do that at the very end of the podcast these days. And I'm going to be talking about why leadership feels so lonely sometimes. So hang on for that. In the meantime, uh, wow, we've got Mark Driscoll coming up next. I am so excited to sit down and have a conversation with Mark. Uh, he has been through an awful lot. People have been through an awful lot. And uh, well, here's an excerpt from our next episode. There was one day where um, they flew a helicopter over the house and it was sort of a gotcha interview to get us to flee the property uh, through the gate because uh, there was critics and a news crew waiting. And um, I, I saw a helicopter over the house. It was so, I mean, just kind of surreal, bizarre. Hmm. And it was hovering over the yard. And I was like, that's weird. And then I looked and I was like, oh my gosh, I think we're, I think we're getting, I think we're getting sieged here. So I pulled the kids in the house and, um, and then later, and we were all kind of shook up cause it was just so bizarre. And then later that night, my youngest son came down he had a kind of a kid's military jacket on and he had his airsoft gun and he looked at me and he said, dad, is this, is this jacket bulletproof? And I, I said, I said, little buddy, I said, uh, no, it's not. Why, why do you ask that? He said, well, if the bad guys come back, I need to protect my sister. 
And now it's time for a segment I'm really enjoying. It's called What I'm Thinking About. And it's brought to you by Pro Media Fire. If you have not checked out their new social fire plan, do it at promediafire.com forward slash carry. And make sure you check out the leaderscircle.live. It's something brand new I'm launching. You've only got one day left to get in. It closes March 13th, but I would love to welcome you. And one of the reasons I'm giving you over this uh, last month or so, the reasons behind the leader circle, just to take you behind the veil, leadership is lonely. And I talk to leaders all the time who feel isolated and they're struggling. And so I want to try to answer the question, why do you feel so alone in leadership? And I think there's a couple of leading reasons. Number one, and I reminded, I've, I've reminded myself and my team of this over and over and over again. But let's say you're leading something just a little bit larger. You see, often the problem that you're trying to solve is only shared by a small percentage of leaders. So for example, if your church is over 200 in attendance, only 15% of leaders ever have had to solve that problem because 85% of churches are under 200 in attendance. If your church is over 1,000 in attendance, um, well, guess what? <laughs> Only about 1% or 2% of the population has ever had to deal with that issue. If you're an entrepreneur or in private business, if your business has over a million dollars in annual sales, that is a problem uh, shared by only 4% of the population. Yeah, and most people aren't business owners, right? So you think about that, like 4% of business owners lead businesses with over a million dollars worth of revenue a year, and uh, the vast majority of people don't own their own business. So you walk into a family gathering, you walk into any crowd, you walk into any public space, you walk into any community, and most people aren't dealing with the problem that you're dealing with. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm trying to scale this thing. And you look at pe people look at you and they're like, yeah, I don't really know what to say. That's one of the reasons it feels so lonely. I remind my team, you know, this podcast is now in the top 2% of all podcasts in the world. So I love like, you know, that problem. That's a great problem. But when I want to figure out how to reach more people or scale it, there's just a very small percentage of podcasters that could probably speak into that. And I'm tracking with some of those. So you know, what I would do is try to figure out, okay, what percentage of people are actually dealing with this problem? And then that helps you understand the next point, which I'm going to share, which is you probably have to go beyond geography and your local tribe to really get help, right? So some of you, if you're a church leader, you're part of a denomination and you're like, why are the people in my denomination not able to understand my problem? Well, maybe you even have a different model of church and it's like, oh yeah, they don't really get it. And so you find yourself jumping on an airplane and talking to somebody else in another state or somebody from a different denomination. And uh, that's very, very common these days. And it's also very easy to do now that we have the internet, right? So here's what you probably find. If you're a higher capacity leader, there's not a lot of people who understand your problem. And you run into that every time you gather for a family dinner and people can't really solve it. I, you know, your neighbors can't solve it. Your friends can't solve it. That's okay. Um, People in your tribe maybe can't solve it. People who live in your city or your state, maybe there's just a handful of people who really can understand it. Now, the thing that's really important is you want to get people who are at the same stage you're at or ideally ahead of you or slightly ahead of you to speak into your leadership. And uh, I've had to remind myself of that again and again. It's like, you know, I don't know how to solve this thing. That's one of the reasons I invest in executive coaching and leadership coaching. I've got a coach right now. It's not cheap, but he scaled 42 businesses and he's building into me right now. And you know what? It's like, oh yeah, you get it, right? So that's one of the reasons, not the only reason uh, that leadership feels so lonely. Hey, that's one of the things we're trying to build in the leader circle. We want to get like-minded leaders who maybe don't live in your city, 
who maybe are not part of your tribe, but who are trying to tackle major leadership obstacles. And I think it's time to stop leading alone and start leading together. And so if you haven't yet checked out The Leader Circle, head on over to theleadercircle.live. Well, really, if you're listening to this in real time today, because access closes on March 13th. Anyway, hey, whether you join the leader circle or not, that's totally up to you. But I got to tell you, isn't that interesting when you realize, oh, yeah, only 1% of the people in the world are trying to solve this problem. It's like, that's why it feels lonely sometimes. So anyway, seek out those people, find those people and uh, build into those relationships. I have people who don't live in my, I have a few who live in my city for sure who can help, but I have so many who don't and so many who are from a different tribe that are helping me get better as a leader. And I would wish the same for you. So that's what I'm thinking about this week. And we are back next time with a fresh episode. In the meantime, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.